Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. Cambodia is home to the temples of Angkor, which number over 1,000, and pre-COVID at least, attracted millions of tourists each year. Today's guest is an archaeologist who has been working on Angkor for many decades and whose work on its demise in particular has significant implications for us modern-day city dwellers in a time of increasing climate vulnerability. To explore the connection between the ruined temples of Angkor and the potential for comprehensive regional network breakdown, I am joined by Roland Fletcher, Professor of Theoretical and World Archaeology here at the University of Sydney. Roland is Director of the Greater Angkor Project, a collaboration between the University of Sydney, the APSERA Authority in Cambodia, and the EFEO that has been ongoing since 1998. He is author of The Limits of Settlement Growth, published by Cambridge University Press in 1995, and has published extensively on urbanism. Roland, thank you and welcome. Today we're going to be talking about Greater Angkor and global urbanism. So I just wanted to start by asking you to define some of these terms. What's the difference between Angkor, Greater Angkor, and Angkor Wat? Very simply, using the analogy of London, Angkor Wat is like St Paul's Cathedral, and nobody confuses St Paul's Cathedral with London. It's a very common problem at the moment where people talk about Angkor, it just becomes Angkor Wat every time they talk. And that is a real mistake, that conflation. Angkor Wat is huge, but it is not the urban complex. Then the other terms, Angkor is the name of a place, like London is the name of a place. And Greater Angkor is the name of an urban landscape, a gigantic thousand square K urban complex, just as there is a real thing on the ground in the UK called Greater London. That's the way the terms are used. That's very clear. Is the term Greater Angkor also sometimes used to refer to a period in time? No, it's not. It's only used in reference to the urban complex. There is another bigger phenomenon of which Greater Angkor is part, because it is the capital of the Khmer Empire. And the Khmer Empire was very substantial, extending all the way up to Laos, sometimes into Vietnam, and across much of central and southern uh, Thailand. So what time period are we talking about here when we're thinking about Greater Angkor? The real establishment of Greater Angkor is from the 9th century, and it runs through to the 14th century. And then there is a revival of the use of the central area of Greater Angkor in the 1500s. But the ancestry of Angkor goes back at least to the 5th and 6th century AD and has a much deeper regional ancestry in Southeast Asia. So if we could travel back in time, what would Greater Angkor have looked like? And would this have changed over that time period that you've just outlined? It would have changed very markedly. It starts off from the 7th and 8th century onwards as separate settlement complexes on the landscape, which are then all brought together in the late 9th century. And then by the 12th century, it's a gigantic 
low-density urban complex which sprawls across about a thousand square k of landscape. Ironically, if you wanted a vision of what it looked like, you should fly into Los Angeles because the great characteristic of Greater Angkor is that it has thousands of water tanks in it. So if you'd flown in in the 12th century, you would have seen those glittering in the sunlight as you flew in, just as the swimming pools of Greater Los Angeles glitter in the sunlight when you fly in there. And mainly, and what is very curious about Angkor, is that mostly what you would have seen is lots of vegetation because all the houses had vegetation growing around them. And in the middle of Angkor, you would have seen the great towers of the big temples. So were the temples at the centre of this urban sprawl, or were they also dispersed? There are two groups of them, really. The really big ones, the famous ones that everybody knows about, like the Prekan and the Bayon, Angkor Wat, they're right in the middle. They're within about a 20 to 30 square K area that's really central Angkor. There are then big temples much further out, particularly in the older portions of the city like Haraharalaya down to the southeast. And there's really a sort of circuit of quite big monuments which form the outer edge of the urban area of Greater Angkor. But the really significant thing about Angkor in terms of religious behavior is that there are more than 600 small and medium-sized shrines in the whole settlement. They're spread out over the whole thousand square K. It's really quite a remarkable complex of religious structures embedded in a low-density urban landscape, which has probably got about three-quarters of a million human beings in it. Yeah, you've painted an amazing picture of it, actually. It's fabulous. Just fabulous. The glittering water and, and the shrines. Do we have any evidence of what the houses look like? Curiously, yes, we do, though the record is very curious. In the archaeological record, they're quite difficult to see. And the reason they're difficult to see is that they would have been the same as the traditional Khmer houses, which you could see in the 19th and even into the 20th century, which is timber buildings where the ground floor is open and you have pillars where, and everybody is living on the first floor. So those posts that hold up the building are usually stood on a piece of rock or just embedded in the ground. So when the building has rotted away, all you can see is pieces of rock where the posts were located and whatever material was on the ground underneath the main living area of the house. It's a really marvellous way of living because you live on the upper floor, you live on the first floor, and you are above the mosquitoes, you have more airflow. And because it's a low-density city, you don't have people tightly packed around you, except in the very middle of Angkor, in what is called Angkor Tom. You've described to us the different ways of thinking about Angkor, Greater Angkor, Angkor Wat. The other term I wanted to ask you about is global urbanism. When you use the term urbanism, are you talking about really densely packed cities like Hong Kong, or are there different types of urbanism, and how do these differ? Hong Kong is a nice instance to use because everybody thinks of it as a density city, when it is in fact a relatively dense outer suburb of the Pearl River Delta complex. 
and the Pearl River Delta complex extends all the way up to Guangzhou. Uh, it has millions of people in it. And it's indeed the modern equivalent of what Greater Angkor was. These are giant, low-density urban complexes. So the really interesting thing that's happened is that in the 19th and then into the 20th century, modern industrial cities moved towards this sprawling, low-density form. It used to be called conurbation in Europe. It's now commonly called the megalopolis system. And in Asia, it's called the desacotta, the rural urban. And it was assumed until the work we started to do in Angkor that this was a unique characteristic of industrial urbanism, but it actually isn't. Low-density settlement patterns occur in hunter-gatherer camps, they occur in farming communities, and they occur in agrarian-based urbanism. So, for instance, in Mesoamerica, the classic Maya, in Sri Lanka, the great Buddhist cities of the north center of Sri Lanka. I mean, I think you've already begun to touch on it, actually, but tell us, what is the connection between Greater Angkor and global urbanism in terms of the significance of your research? It's commonly been assumed in archaeology and history until relatively recently that pre-modern cities were all compact, dense packed, commonly with walls around them. But what's become clear, and it should have become clear years ago from the work on the Maya in the New World, there are these sprawling low-density urban systems in the pre-modern world. That means that, in fact, human beings locate themselves in settlements from high densities to really very low densities. The importance of this is that once you know that there are low-density urban systems in the agrarian pre-modern world, you then have a comparative to look at modern industrial low-density cities instead of modern low-density cities just being a unique and unusual phenomenon. So I think you're starting to come up to this Next question I have for you, which is about the demise of Greater Angkor in the 14th century. So I'd like to ask you what were the main factors in its demise, and then we might turn to the significance of that for us modern-day city dwellers. So what did lead to the collapse of Greater Angkor? Well, there are a great many factors involved in the demise of Angkor because more generally the world was changing around it. For instance, the Vietnamese and the Thai were expanding down into the areas they now occupy. There were also profound changes inside the society because it was shifting from being a Buddhist Hindu mix to being essentially a Theravada Buddhist cultural system through an extraordinary transition in the 12th century where it moved to Mahayana Buddhism. So there were many changes going on. But the big issue is that what is happening from the 13th century onwards is that the whole world is moving out of what was called the medieval warm phase from the 9th century AD, when conditions were relatively warm, and it's beginning to drop down into what is called the Little Ice Age, which is the famous period in the medieval and the post-medieval period where we know in Europe that you have big rivers like the Thames and the Seine freezing over in the winter. 
So this was a very big transition occurring from the 13th to roughly the 16th century. And the important thing about these great planetary changes in temperature from warm to cool, or vice versa, from cool to warm, is that they're extremely unstable. They produce very unstable weather conditions because great masses of air of different temperature in the atmosphere are shuffling around against each other, relocating themselves around the planet. And that's where you get the tremendous climate disruptions, which we're beginning to see today. And that process happened in the 14th century. And we have a very distinct, very precise record for it in the 14th century in Southeast Asia. And so that led these resources drying up, these changes in the climate, sort of the unpredictability, led to the demise of the entire regional urban network. Is that correct? Well, it's an interesting issue. They led initially, and particularly the climate change, led to the demise of Angkor because the critical feature of the climate change is extreme instability from droughts to extreme monsoons, much larger than the ones we experience today. You may have remembered some years ago that there was a massive monsoon event that flooded Bangkok. It would have been similar to that, but much larger. And the effect of that intense, massive monsoon phase was that it overloaded the water system of Angkor. The water system of Angkor is an amazing piece of engineering, working on running water across very shallow gradients. But it was obviously built to design specifications of what the engineers were familiar with. And in the 14th century, the monsoons are twice as big, and it simply tore out the main water systems through Angkor and wrecked the movement of water back and forth across the urban complex. And once that happened, and once the river eroded down, there simply wasn't water in the area to enable the great rice-growing systems of Angkor to function. And do we know where the people went? Did they leave the area in search of more suitable climates, or is there any record of that? We presume they moved away because one of the really interesting things about this process is the demise of Greater Angkor, which is the largest low-density city in the world, in the pre-industrial world. So this is a very serious phenomenon. Of the three-quarters of a million, we know that from documentary records that the elite and probably the people who immediately serviced that population moved down to the Phnom Penh area, where the capital of Cambodia still is. And it's very important to note that though you have an end of the city, you have the demise of Greater Angkor, you do not have a demise of the Khmer political system, nor of Khmer civilization. Khmer civilization and its political system was extremely resilient. That group moved down to Phnom Penh and maintained political continuity, coming back in the 16th century to actually regild Angkor Wat and use it as a major shrine. So it's very important to notice that the socio-political system of the Khmer was very robust. So do we see this sort of regional urban network collapse or demise taking place elsewhere in the world? We do, yes. Just to come back briefly to Greater Angkor, 
the majority of the 750,000 people who were living in the Greater Angkor urban area itself would simply have dispersed into the surrounding regions. Um, we did a rough estimate if you disperse 700,000 people into the six provinces around Greater Angkor, they're archaeologically invisible because it's like 12 people per square kilometer. So if they just walk out, if they go to their relatives, if they move their children to relatives, you don't get a demographic disaster. You just get people moving away and merging back into the landscape. But that's extremely important because that would have been the same kind of process that would have occurred in northern Sri Lanka and would have occurred with the demise of the great Maya cities. In fact, in the ninth century, as the medieval warm phase began to warm up, and that's the entire network of low-density urban systems in the agrarian world breaks down. We've talked about Los Angeles, Hong Kong, New York. What are the contemporary equivalents of this sort of low-density city that we see in Greater Angkor? Well, there are places like the uh, Shanghai complex in China, Guangzhou urban complex, Lagos in Africa, the East Coast megalopolis, the Western Coast cities of America, and particularly the East Coast of Japan. These are the giant low-density urban systems of the world. But a place like Jakarta, there's a greater Jakarta. It's called the Desakota. That's where the name actually derives from. And these are really big, low-density complexes with millions and millions of people in them, 40 to 80 million people in some cases in the biggest one. And they have the same physical overall structure as the cities of the Maya, the Sri Lankan Buddhist cities, and the cities of the Angkorian world. And so Greater Angkor experienced significant disruption as a result of the climate instability caused by the Little Ice Age. What are the implications for modern-day cities for the demise of Angkor when we're thinking about modern-day climate catastrophe, climate change, climate instability? Well, potentially it's very worrying because what happens with these low-density urban settlements, and you see this really clearly with Angkor, is there is effectively an urban demise. The whole urban complex ceases to function. It doesn't mean that the population disappears entirely because there were farming communities in the area in the 19th century, but the urban system disappears. All the route networks and so on break down. But what is really serious, and you see this particularly for the Maya and very clearly for Angkor, is that the entire urban network, all the routes and the linkages that connected all the low-density settlements of these different cultural worlds disappeared as well. So, for instance, there are four great roads that come in and out of Angkor. And by the 1800s, those roads do not appear on the recorded maps of roads. There's a very famous set of Thai royal maps which show the road system of the area around the Tonglesap where Angkor was located, and those roads are not represented. And that's extremely serious. Just to give you a contrast, in the British Isles, when the Roman Empire ceased to manage the place, 
you have lots of deterioration in the small, compact urban settlements. But when you get through into the Anglo-Saxon period and then into the medieval period, it is still the Roman network between those nodes that continues to function. And most of those towns, the main towns, continued into the Anglo-Saxon and medieval period. You don't see that for Angkor or the Maya cities or in Sri Lanka. When they disappear, they drop out of the continuity of the urban world completely, which is extremely serious. And when you think about how highly networked our modern-day cities are and our systems, it really is quite alarming, isn't it? It would potentially. If it's an equivalent condition, it's extremely serious. The, as you would know, we are actually moving into a more extreme temperature change now than was being experienced in the transition from the medieval warm phase to the Little Ice Age. If the process occurs in the same way, then the implication would be the climate change creates conditions which disrupt key components of cities, then the story is very serious. And to give you an example of how serious it is, almost all of these great low-density cities are effectively at sea level, and the sea level is due to rise. And in one of the recent weather crises in New York, water got very close to getting into the underground system of New York. Yeah, that's really, it's a scary scenario and you've painted it so well for us. Roland, I remember hearing you at a symposium a few years ago saying that if you're studying world history and you're not thinking about Southeast Asia, you're not studying world history. And the other thing I love about your work is how you make the past so relevant to the present and to the future. So, you know, when I I think about the work you do as an archaeologist and the way you apply it to our contemporary day scenarios, it's really quite incredible. So I do want to wrap up by asking you just two questions about the project itself. What is the contribution of this Greater Ankle Project, which has been going on for decades? What is the significance for Australia of this project? Well, there are two separate things. The key one is actually bringing this concept of low-density urbanism into, really systematically into archaeology came from some theoretical work I did in the 1990s. And really the follow-on in significance for Australia is that if you understand large processes in the past, it means that we can work out what they are and maybe do something about them. And that, I would have said, was the primary implication and the primary significance of what this particular work has done. What we've done in addition is we've provided very detailed mapping and LIDAR coverage of the whole of Angkor, and that material has all been provided to the Cambodian authorities. And that, for instance, is potentially very useful for managing water in the whole Angkor area and for doing planning for managing tourism in that landscape. So it's a contribution that Australia can make to the livelihoods of our neighbours and the quality of life in our neighbours' societies. Brilliant. Well, look, Roland, thank you so much for joining us. It's really just such fascinating, important work that you're doing and we're really grateful to have you on SEAC Stories. You've been listening to SEAC Stories. Thank you, Natalie. Brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney.
Make sure to keep up with all our CX Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.